Our pastors um, <clears throat> had a great laugh over this article. In fact, we nearly hurt ourselves laughing. Um, this appeared in the satirical online magazine, The Babylon Bee. Uh, here's the headline. After 12 years of quarterly church attendance, parents shocked by daughter's lack of commitment. Uh, the article goes on. I'll just give you a little piece of this article. Fullerton, California, local father Trevor Michelson, 48, and his wife Carrie, 45, are reeling after discovering that after 12 years of steadily taking their daughter Janie to church every Sunday, they didn't have a more pressing sporting commitment, which was at least once every three months. She, now college age, no longer demonstrates the strong quarterly commitment to the faith with which they raised her, close quote. The article goes on to be very funny and, and convicting, but it got us talking about something. Pastors, after we could breathe from laughing so hard, it got us talking about why this happens, why we devalue the local church. I've been pastoring for a while now, and I've had many conversations about that headline you see in your notes. Um, you got a bulletin when you came and Open it up. Look inside there on the left-hand side. You see that headline, why we devalue the local church in general. I hear four big categories of answers why Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, devalue their local redeemed community. First, like that family in the Babylon Bee article, we, we, we lose sight of biblical priorities. All right? Life gets busy, right? Doesn't it? Raise your hand if your life gets busy. Sorry, I didn't have time to wait. You took too long. Too busy. <laughs> especially, and this is true for Christians, especially we tend to get caught up in good and important things. Okay? In general, thank God, Christians don't tend to get caught up in evil things so much as we just get absorbed by good and important things. And these good things so captivate our attention that erode our church commitment. That leads to conversations like this one. This last week, got this note from a pastor in Dallas. A friend of mine in Dallas leads a very large Baptist church. He wrote me and said, Wayne, we have solid evidence that over the past three years our church attendance patterns have changed, especially for families with preteen and older youth. In general, he writes, families that came to church four Sundays a month now come 2.7 Sundays. By the way, I know what he means, but don't you laugh about that 0.7 Sunday? <laughs> Sermon was really bad. They just left. You know, uh, 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 he goes on, and he's a preacher, so I told him that was the deal. I said, this is your, your fault. Um, he goes on, our twice a month families are now solidly once per month. Have you seen this? Close quote. Now, what's the bottom line here? No one is busier, no one is busier than parents in the coaching stage of life. The coaching stage of life is a wonderful and exhausting era, and in that busyness, we unintentionally can, can get led to devaluing church. We all know the truth, right? I mean, we know Hebrews chapter, here, read it with me. Hebrews 10, 25, you take the underlined text, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now, that the day of his return is drawing near. We know that we are to give highest priority to this gathering with Jesus and his people. We know that it's a big part of how we fight the tyranny of the urgent in our lives. Remember what Jesus said to Martha? Uh, Luke chapter 10. The Lord's talking to Martha at the home of she and her sister Mary. And he says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary, who was gathered in community with the disciples at Jesus' feet, Mary, says Jesus, has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder. A slightly less common but more sinister reason for devaluing church is that we're bothered by church people, right? Church pe you guys are weird. I mean, I'm sorry. It's just church people are strange. They really are. And you know what's the worst part about them? They inevitably hurt your feelings. They do. It's part and parcel 
of living in community with flawed humans. Even in redeemed community, the human flesh and the devil are still operative. Thus, it is not a question of if someone will wound my heart, but merely when it will happen again. Right? That's the only question is when. Sadly, though, many Christians are woefully unprepared for this. And, and as soon as they get their feelings hurt, they bolt for the next church, or, or worse, they go hide out at home. Now, in their defense, the hypocrisy of church people is truly stunning, okay? And of course, of course, we always see hypocrisy in others, right? We can always see very clearly the illogical amalgam of nonsense that is in other people's lives, but we have a very difficult time seeing our own hypocrisy. Once again, thankfully, Jesus gave us the answer to this. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. First book of your New Testament, Matthew. Go to chapter 7. Uh, it's at the end of the great Sermon on the Mount, and go to verse 3. Here's what Jesus has to say. Start in verse 3. Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? And right here, I think Jesus paused for effect. I really do. He's a very funny guy. And, and he, that's a, that is a hilarious image, right? The crowd's dying. He's killing them there on the sides of the Sea of Galilee. Log in your eye. Ah! The crowd catches their breath. They quit laughing, and he goes on. How can you say to your brother, let me get that speck out of your eye. Look, there's a log in your eye, hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We devalue Jesus' wonderful church when we forget that command, and we let ourselves become unhorsed by the hypocrisy of other people's specks. Third reason we depart from or look down on church is that we expect other people to follow our personal application. This one's very widespread. You see, please listen carefully. There is always only one, only one correct interpretation of God's revealed will in any passage of Scripture. There is always one correct interpretation. Yet, there are hundreds of ways to apply that one truth. We forget that. And we demand that other people apply the Bible exactly the way we do. This is nothing new. Look, beautiful reminder, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. The Apostle Paul says, food will not make us acceptable to God. We're not inferior if we don't eat. We're not better if we do eat, close quote. Paul here is dealing with the great big debatable practice of his day. It was the purchase of meat. Did you know about this? Purchase of meat that had been first sacrificed and cooked on a pagan altar, meat given to a, a false god. Now, hearing that, can't you understand why some Christians might, might recoil at eating such stuff? Even if it was, by the way, and it was, the best prepared and safest food that was available in the markets of that day. But other Christians rightly pointed out that God declares everything to be clean, and he does. Everything is useful. Therefore, they said, there's no problem with eating that kind of meat. Each of these is a valid application of the Bible. It's left up to each individual conscience, and yet here's what happened. Each side in this debate entrenched themselves behind their own applicational walls, and, and they threw lobbed, ugly names at the other side. Thank goodness we never do that. But we do. We still see these fights over nutrition today. I'm telling you, all I have to do right now is say one thing about nutrition. You'll be at each other's throats. It's astonishing. It's just, we see it in parenting all the time. This comes up all the time in parenting issues. Music in the church is a really huge arena for this kind of nonsense. Um, here's what happens. Here's what happens. Uh, somebody, some person finds that music, we'll call it music style A. Music style A helps them apply God's word. God's word says to worship God, and, and they find that this kind of music helps them to worship God. That's wonderful. That's their application. But they then take it upon themselves to lobby, pester, complain, moan, or walk out 
if the church worship director doesn't always make sure things are done their way. And hilariously, they are armed with scripture that supposedly proves their point. Blind, so blind to their own applicational pride, they are astonished when they meet other godly people who use the exact same scripture to describe a completely opposite application. It's hilarious. I love watching this. The saddest part is not what it does to the churches. The tragedy is what becomes that person. Friends, listen, when you can't distinguish between correct interpretation and the openness of application, you become horribly wrapped up in yourself. And as Benjamin Franklin very wisely said, a man wrapped up in himself makes a very small package. All these things cause us to devalue God's expression in the local church. There's a fourth reason we do so. This one's a very serious theological issue. We react against inaccuracies about church. You see, people are sometimes, you've probably run into this, people are sometimes taught things about the church that just aren't true. They just aren't in the Bible. And that scars them. I, I, I run in, fairly often I run into painful expressions of this mistake. Um, I only have time for one. For, for example, some people teach that church attendance is necessary for your justification. For you to have your standing before God, you have to go to, you ever quit going to church and you lose your place in heaven. You make the elders and me mad, we can take away your spot before God. <laughs> please, please tell me you know that that's nonsense. Please, is that nonsense, yes or no? Oh, thank you, thank you for saying yes. Of course it is. Justification before God is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. As Ephesians chapter 2 shows, neither church engagement nor any other good activity is a requirement. None. We're not plowing new ground here. Let's remember, just remember what our forebears faced, okay? I couldn't resist. I mean, it it just hit me when I was doing slides and I... Our forebears also had to deal with these problems, and we, we can learn from them, okay? In this, in this annual vision series, we've been discussing the great doctrines of the Reformation. And folks, these doctrines call for modern Reformation. They call for change in my life, reform in our church, reform in our community. Now, originally, the Reformation drew out three biblical doctrines and summarized them in Latin. They did that so people could find them easy to remember. And this was really brilliant. First few years of the Reformation, they brought out these three things. Sola Scriptura, which means Scripture alone in Latin. It says the Bible is the only authority. The Bible has the content of salvation. Then there's Sola Gratia, sola by grace alone. Uh, that, that means grace is a gift from God. You don't earn grace through any human effort. Grace is the means of our salvation. And then they talked about sola fide, faith alone. You're saved by faith, not by works. Faith is how one appropriates salvation. Now, it wasn't very long after the Reformation got rolling and they began to go back to the Scripture that they realized there were two other great summaries in Scripture that people needed to remember if they could understand what it means to be a biblical Christian. And they pulled out these two, Solus Christus and Soli Deo Gloria. Solus Christus says Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Jesus alone. No one else. You don't need anyone else. Jesus is the provider of salvation. Soli Deo Gloria tells us why. Why do we do everything that we do? It is all done for God's glory. All right? These five statements became the great summary of Scripture for hundreds of years. And when when these things are lived out, lives are changed. Lives are transformed when I live according to sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, soli Deo gloria. It's awesome. However, in the next generation after the reformers, there arose a really virulent 
anti-church sentiment. I, I haven't time to tell the fascinatingly dark story. Suffice it to say this, suffice it to say that Christians in the latter 17th century, they experienced the same kind of church devaluation that we often go through today. And, and by the way, this wasn't merely in Europe where the Reformation was going on. Despite her Puritan beginnings, your country, early America, faced a very similar situation. Let me just put it this way. Did you know this? Church attendance in the mid-1700s was lower, much lower than it is even today in America. Church attendance was incredibly low at that time period. So, so the Reformation and the American churches went back to the Bible again, and they did a great job, an excellent job, getting through the muck and establishing a strong ethic for how we're supposed to grow in the local assembly. In response to those anti-church forces that followed the Reformation, the next generation began to speak of one more sola, sola ecclesia. Some of them, not all of them, began to use this term, sola ecclesia. It's Latin. It means church alone. Oh, yeah, you get to do your Latin. On the count of three, sola ecclesia. One, two, three, sola ecclesia. Very good. Now, they didn't mean this. They did not mean this in the Roman sense where the church controls a person's justification. No, no, no. They were just recognizing that the church of Jesus is God's chosen instrument on earth. So, so like the reformers, like our American forebears, let's go back to God's word to learn the truth about sola ecclesia. Let's figure out how Jesus thinks of us. How does Jesus view the church? Um, look on the right side of your notes. You'll see eight really important statements from Jesus on the right side of our notes. First, he says the church is his assembly. It's his assembly. Uh, turn a few pages over in your Bible, a few chapters over to Matthew 16. You're in chapter 7 right now. Go to the east to chapter 16. Chapter 16, Jesus and his followers are at Caesarea Philippi, a remarkably beautiful, very important place, uh, a place that's called Panyas, Banyas today. And, uh, and there Jesus asks them a really important question. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And uh, we're going to skip right to the pith where Simon gives his answer, uh, verse, verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Shimon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. Play on words there. It's from the Greek word Petros, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus uses a really significant term in verse 18. He says he will build his own ecclesia. On Peter's statement, he will build his ecclesia. The word literally means assembly, but it's got a, it's got a long and very important history. Look, from the old ge uh, geometric period of Greek history, way, way back, ever since then, Greek writers had used this word ecclesia to describe a political gathering. It was, it was a gathering of citizens. And ecclesia was a gathering of citizens who were all citizens, members of this particular state. Later, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the word ecclesia was used there as well, and it was used for the assembly of Israel. It always was used of everybody who was part of the family of Jacob, everybody who belongs in Israel. So you got that? Now look, when Matthew records Jesus' speech, and by the way, Jesus probably spoke in Aramaic, but Matthew wrote it down in Greek, which was the accepted world language of the day. God has him use this word, ecclesia, in the Greek. Matthew's telling us something really important. Jesus' church is going to be made up of citizens. Of what kingdom will they be citizens, everybody? What kingdom? The kingdom of? Heaven. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. That's their citizenship. 
And, and look, they're going to be stakeholders. They're going to be true sons of God through Jesus Christ. They are members of God's family through faith in Jesus Christ. They're permanently connected to God. That's what our forebears meant when they used the phrase sola ecclesia. That's what it means when Jesus calls us his church, his ecclesia, his assembly. Now, is that how we live? Is our stake in Jesus' family our top priority? Is our heavenly citizenship the most important thing to us? Is it? It should be. That's what ecclesia means. What does Jesus think of the church? It's his assembly of engaged citizens. Look at the next image, shepherd and his sheep. Uh, John chapter 10 captures Jesus' description. Uh, look here. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. I know my own sheep, and, and they know me as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus says he's the good shepherd, and he calls the church his sheep. The Lord makes clear this is a redemptive relationship, right? He willingly gives his life for the sheep. He brings them into relationship with God the Father. He provides for them. That's what any shepherd does for his flock. Speaking to these Jews who believed in him, Jesus says in verse 16 that he's also gathered Gentiles. That's, that's most of you. He says they're going to be together one flock with one shepherd. Okay, what does this mean? It means the church is secure in Jesus' leadership. Look, look at it. If he's dying for us, living for us, gathering us, leading us, it's all going to work out fine. Lewis Berry Chafer thought all this through. He wrote a great summary. Listen to the way the founder of Dallas Seminary, the founder of Dallas Seminary describes this. He said this, through Christ as their shepherd, believers receive life, liberty, and sustenance. The work of the shepherd as Savior is efficacious because he has laid down his life for the sheep, which makes possible a complete and eternal relationship. Close quote. Jesus says the church is his assembly. It's his flock. And then he describes this in terms of the vine and the branches. Look here, John 15, verse 5. I am the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Rooted in Jesus, we can be amazingly productive, but the Christian and the church can do nothing without Jesus. Nothing good is done without Jesus. A few days ago, a precious little toddler was running through my house. Uh, she and I, actually, we were playing together uh, while Jana was talking to the boring old people. Uh, she and I were playing, and I was on the floor, and, and I was crawling, and this little toddler was chasing me. Ah, she chased me through the house. And, and all of a sudden, I didn't hear her following me anymore, and I looked back, and I noticed she'd stopped. And she had stopped, this little girl had stopped right beside this potted plant in my house. And she stood there, and she looked at that plant, and she looked at me, and she looked at the plant, and she grabbed it and pulled it right up out of the soil. <laughs> and by the way, I'm the one that got in trouble, which I thought was really weird. <laughs> anyway, not the point. The point is, it made me think of John 15. When a local church is disconnected from its nutrition source, Jesus, it cannot do anything of spiritual good. Th Friends, this is why doctrine matters. If we uproot from Jesus' truth, we're, we're worthless. God also describes the church in terms of a cornerstone and building stones. Um, turn just a few pages over in your Bible to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21. Let's read Jesus' quote in verse 42. This is a quote from Psalm 118. Uh, and Jesus says this in verse 42. Matthew 21, 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. 
He's speaking after a parable uh, that Jesus gave to the religious leaders who rejected him. And he points out that he himself is the key that Psalm 118 predicted. He's the cornerstone in the heavenly temple. The Greek is really clever. It's a clever rendering of actually an old Hebrew concept. It's two words from Hebrew that are put into Greek, kephale gonias. Um, kephale is head, gonias is a corner or an angle. The Hebrews used this term all the time. They used it when they were constructing of a, of a keystone, uh, the, the, the keystone in an arch that, that puts the pressure and makes the arch stay together. When the Greeks used this phrase, they used it of the, the first stone, the major stone of a building. The, the, the beautiful church in which I grew up uh, had a very pronounced cornerstone. I still remember it. Uh, my mom, that church was built when she was a little girl. In fact, my mom very proudly told of how for years of her childhood she gave up her allowance every week so that she could help participate in the building of that church. She was very proud of that church, and, and beautifully so. The cornerstone was right by the bell tower, and I can still picture it in my mind. It said Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and then it said in small letters, Matthew 21, 42. Peter uh, later completes this picture, bringing all of us into it. Look, look what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, as living stones, are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church is made up of people who are built together on Jesus. That means the church is established on Jesus. That means the church cannot be shaken. That means it is solid forever. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Isn't this cool? This is how Jesus sees it. This is who we really are. Here's another image he shares, the high priest and the kingdom of priests. Look at John's introduction to his revelation. John chapter 1, verse 6. Jesus made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. The glory and the dominion are his forever and ever. Amen. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the permanent and perfect high priest, and we are his kingdom of priests who serve with him. The, ref the reformers were very, very keen to point this out. 500 years ago, they noted that people like, um, in fact, they were very bothered by this. They noted that people like to make distinctions between clergy and all the rest of you scum, clergy and laity, right? People like to do that, and it really bothered the reformers because that is not biblical. Uh, my old professor, Howard Hendricks, used to call that hogwash. In fact, he said this, making clergy more priest than the laity is the glorification of the worm, close quote. And he looked at me and said, you're the worm, Broderick, just a worm. And he's right. Every person who trusts in Jesus Christ becomes Jesus' priest. That, that means we are each and every one of us who believes in Jesus, we are set apart to serve him as his holy ones. So think it through. That means that we are made to serve in the church. That's what priests do. That's why you and I are not doing anyone any favor when we serve in the church. We're not doing anybody any favor. The church is doing us a favor by giving us a chance to do that which we were made to do. We're made to serve. We work in the church. That's what priests are all about. Three more pictures God paints so we can, so we can truly grasp sola ecclesia. He gives us three more images. First, consider the head and the body. Uh, this is a metaphor that appears throughout the New Testament. I especially like the lovely poetry of Colossians 1. Look, Colossians 1.18. He, Jesus, is the, also the head of the body the church. When I was in college, I once worked an auto accident uh, where a man was decapitated. That horrific image is exactly the situation for churches that try to live outside of Jesus' clear authority. He is the head. Without him, we die. 
But the body also matters. And the universal church of all believers is unified into one living body under Jesus. Now, we may not be able to understand it. We may not be able to see it across the ages, across the differing styles of application. But it's nonetheless true. It, think of the parts of my body. So, so I was thinking the other day about a couple of these neurons that I'm still having trouble with from when I tore these tendons in my, in my elbow. Imagine if one of those neurons was sentient, okay? I mean, could, could think and see... That stuck in there, in my elbow, it would have no way to understand this eyebrow over my right eye, this one hair, that one hair that grows like 12 times faster than all the, do you, do you relate, I, what, nuclear eyebrow, what happened? It's just, a, and you pull it and it comes back bigger, it's not, it, they don't understand each other, but I do, I understand how they work together and are part of, of one body, maybe, Maybe in this church, you're that wild eyebrow hair, okay, right? Or maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you're a red blood cell, taking the oxygen of God's grace throughout all the wonderful parts of the body. But whatever your role, know this. You, if you believe in Jesus, you are connected to him who is the head. You are an inextricable, important part of his body. All God's people said? Amen. The Bible also pictures the last Adam and the new creation. Brilliant argument in 1 Corinthians 15. And, and in that argument, the Apostle Paul describes our coming physical resurrection. And look at this. He uses this image. He says, for as in Adam all die, verse 22, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus is the ultimate answer to sin that came through the first man, Adam. In fact, in the passage, Paul goes on to call Jesus the last Adam. I, I lack the time to develop this in depth today. Suffice it to say that we... We are the new creation that surrounds the last Adam, just as the original creation surrounded the first Adam. And the point is we follow Jesus as his creation, just as creation followed Adam in the garden. He gives us life. He rules us perfectly. We're his new creation. We're made to flourish under his hand, something we will do forever in our resurrection. The last Adam's new garden will never have any sin whatsoever. Can I get a hallelujah? hallelujah. Amen. Again, Dr. Chafer summarizes the point, I think, really nicely. Look what he writes. As Adam was related to the first creation, which fell into sin, so Christ, as the last Adam, is related to the new creation, which speaks of believers' perfection in heaven. This is what you are, church. Look, you're the assembly, you're Jesus' sheep, you're the, the branches on the vine, the building on him is the cornerstone, we're a kingdom of priests, we are the body of Christ, we're a new creation. And look, one more, final one. The bridegroom and the bride. John chapter 3, we read about the willing and submissive partnership of John the baptizer with Messiah Jesus. Beautiful story. Now, fascinatingly, in that story, John describes Jesus as a groom, the groom, he calls him, and people as his bride. Uh, look, John chapter 3, verse 29. John says, he who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him he rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The rest of the New Testament uses this image often. Jesus is the groom, and all of us together, we're the bride of Christ. That means we're precious to the Lord. Why do you think you're called Christian? Because you took his name, as brides do. Christian, that's your name. We're beautiful to him because of him. 
Some years ago, the, uh, the Texas songwriter Twyla Paris penned a simply fantastic poem about this. Look, just a little part of what she wrote. How beautiful the radiant bride who waits for her groom with his light in her eyes. How beautiful, how beautiful, how beautiful is the body of Christ. When I officiate weddings, I always glance at the groom and I watch him when the bride is introduced, when she appears. And every time he swells with joy, in fact, often, I would say most of the time, as I look at the guy next to me, he's in tears. He is just full of tears because he cannot get over the incredible joy that he gets to be one with this precious bride. And that, my friends, is exactly how Jesus feels about you. That's how he feels about his church. Isn't that awesome? That's what the second generation of reformers were trying to capture. They wanted churches to live in light of, of what we really are. We are part of the one invisible, eternal, universal church of Jesus Christ. All God's people said, amen. amen. And it's beautiful. Now, why is it so important? Look at the question I put in our notes. What will change if we live out sola ecclesia? What will change? I find three things change. Number one. Christians may be rescued when they're astray. Christians have a much higher chance of being rescued when they're astray if we live out the real body of Christ. When I was in college, I went through a period of detachment from church. None of the churches there were like my wonderful church back home, and so I just, I just slept in most Sundays. I didn't want to go anywhere. Hearing about this, a buddy of mine sent me a picture, and it was a photograph of an ember that was dying away from a roaring fire. And on the picture, he wrote this, and I quote, get your sorry butt back into the flame where you belong. Close quote. Sounds like your friends. When we see the church for what it truly is, we value it. And we value people being attached to it. We work hard to bring the dying embers back into the fire. Back in Matthew 18, Jesus describes this process. It, it, he says, because we care about every sheep, we are to shepherd back those who are running astray. If it gets really bad, the church elders are to get involved in that care. And that brings up one of the most tragic truths of our era. And the sad reality is that most churches don't practice this kind of Matthew 18 elder care. A lot of churches call it church discipline. I don't think that's a good term. I think elder care is better. At this church, we do practice it. And get this. We have been blessed over the years to see an amazing response rate of over 50%. Over 50% of the time, when we confront somebody and go after somebody who is quite often shaking their fist at God, they repent and they return to God and they get back into where they belong with Him and with all of you. It is, it is just beautiful. Now, it's not because of us. It's God's grace. But I can't tell you how blessed we are to be a part it is a real blessing to be a part of that restoration because the church is God's chosen instrument on earth and people need, they need to get back to the flame. Second great thing occurs when we live sola ecclesia. The ordinances can be recaptured. They can be recaptured from obscurity and from overstatement. This is a really big deal to the reformers, especially this great thinker here, Ulrich Zwingli. This was a really big deal to him. He was particularly bothered uh, because there were, there were two opposite problems going on. Let me, let me show you. Sometimes, and this still happens today, the ordinance is established by Jesus. Jesus gave us two things to remember him, two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Sometimes those, those are treated as works. 
that are necessary for someone to be justified before God. Is that true? Yes or no? Please say no. Please say no. Please say no. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. That's not true. But neither is the other practice that was going around and goes around even to our day. And that is the idea that the Lord's Supper and baptism by Jesus, they're just, those are just unimportant. They don't matter. When we act according to a proper view of Jesus' church, you know what we can do? We can exalt the ordinances as important acts that are commanded by Jesus, but we don't twist them to be something that they're not. That's why last Sunday, all of you who are here participated in the Lord's Supper and why we do that every month. That's why we're about to do baptisms here right now this morning because Christians are a new creation in Jesus, and it's important. What, what changes when we live out sola ecclesia? Brethren are brought back to health. The ordinances are rescued. Finally, room is made for people to grow up. When we practice sola ecclesia, room is made for people to grow in sanctification. A, a, a theologian named Michael Glodo, with whom I disagree about some understanding of the church, he's nevertheless right on when he describes how poorly people grow up without a church home. L look what he says. He writes, this is from his article, Sola Ecclesia. He says, we all know the word that describes a child born without a father. It's a cruel word, reflecting not upon the child, but upon the parents. We must stop commending to people the one parent family as God as father without the church as mother. Otherwise, we are complicit in the consequent bastardization of believers, close quote. People need a church. And that's why your church needs to continually reform and continually grow. Just look at your own short history. Okay, look. When we started Frisco Bible Church 22 years ago with 22 people, which included the babies, whom we counted, um, <laughs> Since we started Frisco Bible 22 years ago, the city of Frisco has grown by 1,220.14%. Frisco Independent School District, when we started this church in 1994, FISD had about 3,000 students. Today, there are over 55,000 students in FISD. And that's just in FISD. That's not counting the kids that are at Legacy Christian Academy, the Christian school that this church started, or, or the, FI, uh, the Frisco His, the homeschool group that we started. Just think of it this way. In the next few years, 100,000 souls are going to move into the city of Frisco alone. And that's just Frisco. Many of us live outside of Frisco. When we appreciate the beauty of God's church, we realize that it needs to keep making room for all these people because they need a home. They desperately need a church home. Listen carefully. If you're one of those new folks, or if you're here this morning as somebody who doesn't have a biblical church home, know this. We love you. We love you. We are so glad you're here. And we have been and we will sacrifice to make room for you. We will. And sometimes it's painful sacrifice that you'll never see. But we do it because God loves us and he loves you. And you need to do your part as well. I want to give you a very simple guide of how to spiritually grow up in the church. Here's how you can spiritually prosper in this church. You ready? Worship, connect, grow, serve. That's it. Four words. In fact, we wrote them on the wall out there so that we could remember them all the time, all right? Worship God, connect to community, grow in discipleship, and serve others. Those values change everything. Our church mission doesn't change. The mission answers all the big questions in life. Annual theme series, we ought to say our mission again. Here, you guys say it with me. The mission of Frisco Bible Church. Who are we, everybody? Who are we? We are redeemed community. What do we do? We do the Great Commission. That, that's a quote from Matthew 28 where Jesus said, Go into all the world, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. It's what we do. It's a great summary of what we do. How is that done, everybody? By the power of the Holy Spirit, not through our own flesh. And what's the purpose? What's the whole point? Tell me the why, everyone, for the glory of God. Now, our values flesh that out practically. They tell us how to be sanctified in redeemed community. Worship, connect, grow, serve. That's how one lives out redeemed community. First, worship the triune God and worship Him alone. In fact, be committed to worship in everything you do. Everything you do. Second, connect with other Christians and keep relentlessly connecting even when they inevitably hurt your feelings. Third, grow. Be determined that by God's grace, you're going to grow up in Christ. You're going to learn and practice and fall and fail and succeed and grow and keep on growing until Jesus Christ comes or he takes you home. And finally, serve in the church. Share your time and your effort. Be a servant in the mold of our servant leader, Jesus. Friends, when we worship, connect, grow, and serve, we make room for sanctification. We make room for sanctification in our own hearts, and we also make room for other people's lives. Pray with me about that. Let's pray together. Lord, may we worship, connect, grow, and serve in everything we do. As, as we prepare to give our offerings, I, I praise you for how giving embodies each of these values. It, it's, it's worship when I give because where I put my money <laughs> shows exactly where my heart is. Giving builds our church. It builds it up for connection. It helps us grow. It's a big part of how we serve. So bless us, Lord, in everything, but especially as we give. In Jesus' name, amen.